Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I am living with two housemates at the time. We were all out of the house and we had a string of robberies around our cul-de-sac and we got home and there was a noise and I have a split level house. There was a noise on the second level and the sword, it was right there in the kitchen. And so I grabbed the sword and ran towards the noise. And when I opened the door, there was a dude in the room, the window was open, and he was handing out a laptop to some other dude. And I held the sword up at him, and I said, I have a sword! is the Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is my business partner, Val Schrock. She is the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, which helps individual real estate investors by performing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where they live. Maverick has been featured in major national media and was named one of the top 50 real estate opinion makers and market leaders. Valerie and her co-founders at Maverick have helped individual real estate investors buy over $100 million in residential investment property across 15 U.S. states. Val has built her business with a location-independent infrastructure so she can run it from anywhere in the world that allows cats. And she has spent time in over 30 different countries. She also has interest in cardboard engineering and puppet making, multimedia design, chalk doodling, animation, general geekdom, escaping the mundane, playing games, learning how things are made, adrenaline, playing the trumpet extremely loudly, lock picking and internet pirating. Val, welcome to the show. Hello, Maddie. This has been such a long time in the making. I want to say that this episode has been in the making for about 21 years since we initially met each other in 1999. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. That's true. We have known each other and been best friends for two decades now and business partners since 2007. Indeed. 
So you're going to be able to tell the audience a lot of things about me that very, very, very few other people know. Partners in crime, partners in peace, partners in business. For sure. Let's set the context, though. We are right now. Actually, I'm very excited that we are doing this interview in person. This is the first in-person interview that I have done since the COVID-19 pandemic. We are right outside Washington, D.C. at your place in what I consider the Maverick Investor Group control room. That's right. It's Val's bubble. It's the bubble. Sorry, we're watching the WNBA, the WNBA playing the bubble. That's right. The uh, NBA playoffs are taking place in the bubble. We the, are in the, the bubble. The WNBA playoffs are taking place in the wobble, and we are recording this interview in the bubble. That's right. There are an enormous amount of computer screens around us and all sorts of electronic gadgets. This is kind of, that's why I call it the Maverick Control Room. It's basically where all of the action happens and the entire company is run out of this particular control room. So it's a very fitting place to be doing the interview. That's right. There's my Steve Irwin bobblehead. No jokes, still too soon. There is the electronic dartboard that talks back. There's the Legos. Yeah, we've got... uh, Wall art, Michigan plates on the wall. Those are from my first two cars. Yeah, it's the bubble. It is indeed the bubble. Well, speaking of your Michigan connection, I think that would actually be a really great place to start because I know that is a central part of your life and identity as a Michigander. So let's talk a little bit. Let's just kind of go back. And I would love to hear a little bit about where you grew up. And as you were growing up, some of the earliest stories about you that I know relate to sports as a major part of your life. And I would love for you to chat a little bit about growing up in Michigan and also what sports meant to you. Yep. Well, we have to start in Kalamazoo. My earliest memories begin in Kalamazoo in the 70s, playing games and Throwing things and climbing things and jumping from high places is one of the very, those are some of the very first memories I actually have. I have memories of action. And so I think before I would would name it sports, I had the very sort of the, the, the seeds of an identity of an athlete before anything else. And I just grew up with that sense of, I am an athlete, I am going to be a professional athlete. And If you would have asked me which sport, I would have said, which one? You mean which one won't I do? I tried everything. I will also say that my early years as an athlete were underscored by the fact that my mom was a phys ed teacher. And so she brought home any equipment I wanted. I mean, anything more so than your regular. This was not just used sports. Like I could equip a team. I had bases. So I could go and create a baseball field in my backyard, which I did. I had lots of cones so we could create actual football fields. So I equipped the whole neighborhood. And so sports in my household, that kind of went very hand in hand. How old were you when you can remember being a Detroit Lions fan? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So you know how <laughs> you know how memories are the strongest when they can involve taste and smell and all that kind of stuff, right? So 
Football in Michigan is like intertwined with Sundays and pizza and the fireplace going and watching the Detroit Lions often lose with my dad on the floor of the family room. And so we're talking some of the earliest memories. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm pretty sure I don't remember not doing this. <laughs> like this was how this was how you spent the long winter. <laughs> yeah, and you are still a diehard Detroit Lions fan. There is Detroit Lions paraphernalia, <laughs> stuffed animals, things hanging all over this house. Yes. And that is one of the things that I have always known about you that football has been a huge part of ever since we met. I literally remember when we met, <laughs> I feel like it was maybe the first day or two of grad school when we wound up in the same class. And at the break in the middle of the class, we were all like walked outside to sort of stand outside and talk to our new classmates. You pull a football out of your backpack. Yes, I did. And tell me to go long. I did. You look tall. Lanky. I run out about maybe 10 to 15 yards. I turn around, little button hook pattern. You're like, I said, go long. I'm like, how far can this new classmate of mine throw a football? So I take off off the quad and you bomb it all to me halfway across the quad. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And then sure enough, we would have, you would always carry a football in your backpack. Yes. We were out one night at, I remember this, we were at Nanny O'Brien's Irish Pub in Washington, (laughs) D.C. And it was probably, I want to say, a good 1.30 in the morning. And we were coming out of Nanny O'Brien's Pub. It was 1.30 in the morning, and the subway was still running because it runs till like 2 a.m. in D.C., the metro. And the DuPont Circle metro station probably has the longest escalator I have personally ever seen in my life. Yep, me too. So for most people, like take the longest escalator you've ever seen and like double or triple that for sure. I mean, this is like crazy long escalator. So we're coming out of this pub at 1.30. I was like, Val, do you have your football? You're like, of course I have my football. Of course I have my football. What a silly question. I was like, I've got an idea. Okay. How about... You go down the escalator and ride it down like about, and by the time you get about halfway down the escalator, yell I, I yell hike and I will long snap the football to you between my legs from the top of the escalator. I said, Maddie, you're a genius. I thought it was a great idea. I thought it was a great idea too. And so we did it. <laughs> <laughs> So far. Oh my God. It missed me. It just went down, down, down. There were other people coming up the escalator. It was bouncing. God, duck. It was bouncing around. Other people were ducking and trying to avoid it. Projectile. They were definitely not. Escalator of that size and stature. They were definitely not. So a lot of my earliest and uh, fondest memories of you have to do with your connection with a football and as Detroit Lions football in particular. That's the important part. It is a Detroit Lions football. Yes, it was. Okay. So Lions fan from as early as you can remember, day one, go Lions. And then as you're growing up and you're actually wanting to get into sports, idolizing these professional sports figures, 
playing sports, all that. How was that experience for you in terms of shaping your identity and who you are, both in terms of, you know, your, your competitive nature, as well as, you know, the gender dynamics involved in sports as kids and all of that. Interesting question, because I think that when I was very young, my gender identity was pretty fluid, but my athlete identity was not. That was just very much set in stone. And I was very confident in that athletic identity. And then right around, I transitioned to a private school. And right around that transition time, fourth grade, I all of a sudden went from a public school to a private school. And it was a, it was a private Christian school. And they had very strict gender rules. And I did not ascribe to... My gender identity was very fluid, like I said. And so I, I showed up on day one with my Converse All-Stars. I had my Chucks. I had my overalls, like Oshkosh Bagash overalls. And underneath my overalls, I was wearing my Detroit Lions jersey. And so I I got into Mrs. T's class. I'm going to call her Mrs. Toenail. So I don't out (laughs) this terrible, terrible, terrible teacher. Um, I was in Miss Toenail's class. Actually, I will say, okay, before we even got into class, I was lined up. And this is a fairly small school. So there's just going to be, in going into fourth grade, two classes. So you're either in A or B. While I was standing in line, one of the girls looked at me and said, what are you? And I had never had that question before. No one ever asked me what I was. And so that was maybe my very first, I had maybe about a minute or two to absorb the fact that, okay, something is very different in this school than in my last school where I could be a boy, I could be a girl, I could be an athlete, it didn't matter. I could be whatever I wanted to be on any given Monday. And so this was a school where Not only were there unwritten rules to like how you looked, how you acted, what you did, it was right down to what exactly you wore. And all of those girls were wearing like skirts and dresses and like very cute first day outfits. So I did not answer the question. I did not say anything. I guess got into Miss Toenail's class and she had the following question. We went around the room. She said, say your name and what you want to be when you grow up. And yes, I had been training all summer to help the Detroit Lions. They had very little going for them in the quarterback department. And so I thought, well, that's obviously the hole that I will step in to fill. You're welcome. So I really worked on my spiral that summer. So it got to me and I said, my name is Val and I am going to be the quarterback for the Detroit Lions, to which... All the kids laughed, and Ms. Toenail says, that's just silly. Girls don't, don't play football. Pick something else. That made me mad, and so right away, my brain, I was nine, said, what's the worst thing I could possibly think of? And the only thing that came to my mind was the hamburger from the McDonald's commercials that stole all the cheeseburgers, and so I thought, I know that word. 
And I said out loud, I am going to be a cat burglar. (laughs) And she said, you are what? And I said, I am going to be a cat burglar. I am going to break into fancy places and steal things. To which she said, you may get out of my class. And so I was kicked out in the hallway of Miss Toenail's class. I did not last 15 minutes in fourth grade in this new school. Okay, so that afternoon, how did your parents handle that? Because first of all, big shout out to Ron and Nancy Schrock, who are two of the most amazing people, your parents, that I've had the privilege of spending time with on numerous occasions over the years. They're amazing. But at that age, when you think back to how you felt on that day and then you came home, how did they handle that? And how did your ongoing sports career go? So I get in the house and I'm feeling hopelessly angry. Ms. Toenail, remember, said that girls don't play football. And so not only was she saying that I couldn't be the quarterback for the Detroit Lions, she was saying that I couldn't even be playing the sport that I was so obviously made for. And the Detroit Lions needed my help. And had she even seen them lately? So anyway, I remember my dad came home and I was very, (laughs) I think I was very focused on this question. I was probably very weepy, like, "Uh, Dad, can I be the quarterback for the Detroit Lions? (laughs) And my dad probably had not put down anything in his hands. I had probably accosted him as he was coming through the door. Thankfully, the right answer came right out. He said, I think, something to the effect of, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And I immediately went to, now I am righteously angry. I knew it. Mrs. Toenail's a liar. The whole school is made up of liars. (laughs) I am right. I can be the quarterback for the Detroit Lions. My dad said so. Um... Well, big up to your dad for for that answer. That's amazing. And then from then on, okay, you're nine. And how did the future of your sports career go? It was interesting because uh, sports remained my top identity for years and years and years. I think growing up in Southwest Michigan, I had somewhat of an identity crisis where I don't think I knew where I fit in. I didn't, we didn't have language for anything beyond, are you, are you male? Are you female? Are you straight? Are you gay? You know, and then if you're not the right answer or the not the right combo of those, you know, it was not okay to start with, let alone having any other language that, that I felt, you know, suited me. I didn't, I didn't even get a chance to ask myself the question, like, am I transgender? In terms of my gender, how do I identify in terms of my orientation? Like those questions weren't even on my radar because the language just didn't exist. You know, so it stayed just what am I? I'm an athlete. And so that is all I focused on. And it was convenient because I was a good athlete. And so for me, eventually that turned into I had the best time with softball. Because in Southwest Michigan, that was kind of the sport. It was definitely the sport that had the all-star teams and the travel teams and the most amount of competition, the tightest competition. 
it was, you know, we girls weren't, unfortunately, they weren't playing football yet and they weren't playing hockey yet. They would later and they would soon, but they weren't at the time that I was growing up or I would have stuck with, I think, probably football. But in any case, I switched over and that's what I did. And that's all I cared about all through middle school and high school. It was sports 24 seven. And in college as well. Yeah. Yeah. In college as well. Yeah. That was a tough transition because I, I got to college and I really wanted to be a professional athlete in some way, shape or form or go into sports as a career. That was a difficult time period for me. It was it was harder on a number of levels. I got to college and I had never had a well, first of all, I'd never had a female coach in any of my like all-star teams, travel teams, high school varsity teams. College was like, I, I didn't have any role models in the sport that I had chosen. And again, they were yet to come. Female coaches have paved the way in every single sport, including the NFL. They're there. But uh, growing up for me, I just didn't have as many pathways by the time I got to college, I thought, no, I need to make a career that's that's something more than just just sports. Because the other thing was like, their career wise, I wasn't sure, you know, what would pay. You know, softball had yet to become. I think it became an Olympic sport eventually, for a while, and then it wasn't. But in that short window, it didn't fit when I was in high school and when I would have needed to be able to train like in Florida or California. So it's just, I missed every sports, like those trains, like one by one, they just kept leaving the station between the ages of like, say 18 and 22. So I kept having to look for, okay, what's the next? What's next? What's next? All right, fine. I'll just focus on psychology because I don't know what's next. And so I got a degree in psychology. Yeah, for real, just because I didn't know the answers to any real questions for myself. Isn't that classic? That's a good approach. Yeah, (laughs) I love that. Well, another thing that I want to ask you about um, growing up is being Mennonite. And I want to ask if you can, first of all, for people that don't know or maybe have never even heard of that, because we have listeners in 130 countries, uh, can you talk about what being Mennonite is and then also what that has meant for you and how that has shaped and impacted your life? Yeah, um, being Mennonite, it's a a pacifist Christian uh theology. And Mennonite is one of the peace churches. There's Quaker, there's Brethren, there's Amish, Mennonite, Hutterite. Anyway, as a peace church, it generally means that we are a pacifist people. (laughs) I'm, again, laughing because like, in you know, in theory, I'm very pacifist, sure. But in practice, I'm I don't know. I've probably just never been in a situation where I had to make a choice. <laughs> you do strike me as very ninja-like, though. I tend to be a more aggressive pacifist. You're sort of a ninja-like <laughs> pacifist is how I sort of describe you. So how, though, would you say that the Mennonite framework has shaped your 
social and political and ethical orientation towards the world? Well, okay. So the first way in which I understood my Mennonite framework was probably through family and food. Whenever my my broader family would get together on either side, it was often in a rural area. And then the food that goes with it is always just amazing food. Like Amish Mennonite food is just, it's homemade. It's known for using simple ingredient, simple ingredients, real ingredients, like real butter, real sugar, real, you know, if it's maple syrup, it's real maple syrup. If it's, you know, lard, it's lard, you know, <laughs> it's, it's all the good stuff. <laughs> so that's probably one of the first introductions. And then later I started to understand what conscientious objector was and is. Um, my dad got his 1W service uh, during Vietnam, so he was a conscientious objector. He did service at Fort Wayne Hospital in the 60s. That's something that I started to understand politically later, like during college, I would say. I don't think I was very political during high school. Mm-hmm. But you had that framework, and then later as your college and then graduate school work and then activism and all that, you were able to sort of build on that. And there was a sort of a cohesion there. You had there that foundation. Was a, there was a foundation. There was a cultural cohesion. There was a political cohesion. Even where I went to school, like I went to a Mennonite college. So it was just part of the community. You know, you developed a sense of what what does Mennonite mean? What does pacifism mean? How does it play with politics today? You know, how would it have played in different parts of our history, in different time frames, in different ways, and stuff like that? Where do you fit in? So, yeah, I was just starting to ask myself some of those questions, thanks to Goshen College, which got, you know, got that ball rolling. I think that it was, though, when we met, and I started really pursuing like international peace and conflict resolution. And certainly the Mennonite heritage inspired me to go in that direction. It was probably the heritage that, so what inspired you to go in that direction? I know what inspired me because you, you started, I went, I started in psychology and then went into international peace and conflict resolution. You started in social work, similar place. Well, it was it was sociology, I would say. Oh, sociology, okay. Yeah, more so than social work in particular, although I suppose that's probably a sub-genre in terms of how like college majors work perhaps. But yeah, for me, I mean, my a lot of my social consciousness was raised through initially, I mean, if I go all the way back to like middle school, I would say through hip hop music and through okay. finding politically conscious hip hop music and listening to groups like public enemy in eighth grade or so. And then just starting to ask questions about what are these guys talking about? Who are these people they're referencing? Why have I not heard this history before? And I can remember in high school being very interested in the civil rights movement and the history of the African-American struggle in particular. And then, you know, wound up in college and I just very coincidentally ended up in a sociology 101 class just as part of a general education liberal arts type of requirement. And in that class, they went into race and gender and economic class stratification 
And all of these different things where I'm like, whoa, like I've never learned this before. It's super interesting because now all of a sudden these various different things that I had been studying in, and interested in were coming together. But this is really interesting. So then I started taking more sociology classes and then I decided to major in it. And my advisor was Native American. He was Lakota, part Lakota, part Dakota. And so I took his Native Nations class and all of that. And then I studied abroad in Ireland, as you know, my junior year of college, and I had him as my advisor. So we were doing, you know, academic work that was comparing the colonial processes over Irish people with the colonial processes over Native nations and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, a lot of that stuff started coming together for me. And then my my senior year of college, I did a study abroad program, which focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and went to Israel and the West Bank and Gaza and Egypt as part of that. And so then, and then we were looking at those comparative colonial processes, right? The Israeli colonial processes over Palestinians compared with the European and then later American colonial processes over native nations here. And so all of that stuff I, you know, I had done the Ireland stuff, the Palestine stuff, the Native Nation stuff, and then African-American history was still a huge interest of mine and passion of mine. And so all of that, I just kind of got to the end of my bachelor's degree. I got my sociology degree and I'm like, I have no idea what I want to do. I think I'll <laughs> go to grad school and study international peace and conflict resolution because I had done so much on Pal on the Israel-Palestine conflict and the, North, the conflict of the North yeah. of Ireland. That was just sort of the logical next step for me. And then uh, there you were, first day of class. <laughs> I would say I had something somewhat. Well, I graduated with a major in psychology, a minor in peace studies, right? I started working in the field of psychology and man, it was intense. Like I started out at a, uh, a psychi psychiatric hospital and then I was a supervisor at a, at a youth shelter where I was on call, you know, 24-7. And so it was uh, very intense. And so I thought, all right, well, that was great. Now what do I do? After a year, I graduated and worked for a year. And so I was like, I'll just follow my minor which was, you know, peace studies. So I was like, I'll do international peace studies. And I had spent one semester abroad in the Dominican Republic during college. And that got me started asking political questions. Like when we went over the border into Haiti and were met with security guards with guns that got on our vans and made sure that, you know, going over the border and back, that we weren't smuggling Haitians or smuggling Dominicans one way or the other, right? And so the free trade zones and the sweatshops that at the time Disney had a hand in, those were all happening in Haiti. And so we got into Port-au-Prince, and I think that we got into one of the free trade zone areas to be able to walk around and ask questions. And that was just a big eye-opening, like, huh, where do all my things come from? Where do all my products come from? What is, you know, do no harm? What is pacifism? What are these, some of these big questions that I always, I got to hear my parents and grandparents talk about, 
from a very religious standpoint or talk about from the standpoint of history or war. And then suddenly I was traveling the world asking bigger questions for myself. And then how did your activism evolve? You and I have actually done a lot of activist work together over the years. We have, yeah. In a number of conflict regions. Do you want to talk about some of the experiences that stand out to you? I mean, I think that we were at American University at a very interesting time because there, there were a number of things happening. The Good Friday Agreement was very new. Which, for context, was the peace agreement that was signed between the parties in the north of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and Britain. And that was actually signed the year that I was studying abroad there. So I was studying abroad in Ireland, 97, 98. So I followed that whole process. And I was actually in Belfast the day they signed that agreement, 1998. And then you and I started grad school in 1999. Yep. And then there were the big international protests against the World Trade Organization and other uh, entities like the IMF and the World Bank, which began in 1999. Yep. In the United States in Seattle. Yep. So then at American University, we started having a certain amount of student groups getting together and talking. How did we get into sustain? How did that start, though? So I had been to. Israel and Palestine in 1998 also. That was my senior year of college. Yes. It was the winter of 1998 that I went to Israel and Palestine for the first time and was very immersed in the all of the realities of that conflict in terms of the colonialism and the apartheid and all of the things that were going on there. And then in 2000 the second Palestinian intifada erupted. That's right. While we were in grad school. That's right. And so I had a very strong connection and, you know, quite recent immersion and involvement in the situation. And so when the second intifada broke out in 2000, a number of us just started getting together, both, you know, Palestinian students that were on campus, as well as, other people that were in solidarity and wanted to help to organize around that. And so a number of us started coming together and then started connecting with other activists around the D.C. area. And then we just started putting together these meetings. And we had already connected in class. Right. So I got you involved in that. I was like, you got to come to this. That's right. That was you. Yeah. So we then, a whole number of activists at the time, some were from Americans, some were from Georgetown, some were just like local community activists, yep. you know, around. And uh, we all came together and organized a group called Sustain, which stood for Stop U.S. Tax-Funded Aid to Israel Now. And the framework was that we were going to educate, do popular education in the United States about the role of American tax dollars in facilitating the ability of the Israeli government to violate human rights. Right. And the framework was that U.S. aid to Israel should be contingent upon Israel complying with their obligations under international human rights law and so forth. And this was before the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign or any of that stuff was launched. This was back in 2000. So this was a very early on initiative of Palestinian solidarity and to try to support uh, human rights in the region. That's right. And I made 
We did a lot of street theater during that time. We did. My specialty was to make cardboard planes and tanks. Yeah, we should talk about some of that because that was some of the most epic and amazing activism that I have ever been a part of. It was pretty amazing. I mean, we would organize, I mean, like a couple hundred people. On like M a, Street like in huge, the middle of Georgetown. Like, a huge, we did that one and then we did the DuPont the Circle DuPont one. The DuPont Circle one was big too, yeah. And you would lead the, you called it cardboard engineering. Cardboard engineering. And puppetry. Yep. And we would build these, you know, like cardboard refugee camps and we would build tanks and planes and basically all of the different things to recreate through puppetry, the reality of what was going on on the ground in Palestine. And then we would have these hundreds of people would play these roles and they would act out the human rights abuses that are being funded with U.S tax dollars. And we would do this in these incredibly high profile public places. So if anybody knows Washington, D.C., M Street is like the really main sort of posh street in the Georgetown area. And DuPont Circle is is a hugely popular central area in D.C. where they have sort of a park and stuff there in the middle. And we would just take these over with hundreds of people all in costumes and we would just act out the, and everybody, we had rehearsed with everybody before. They all knew what their roles were. And we would act out these human rights abuses that were going on in Palestine and try to raise awareness through that. Yep. And I think that that was the beginning of my fascination for art and popular media, for political change, for any kind of change, even now, like being able to be creative in a way that brings forward our entrepreneurial goals like the artistic side of that is one of my favorite things to do that is when I am feeling the happiest or the most resolved I think that came all the way from street theater I think it just being able to be creative and work on whether it's cardboard design and then later it became graphic design and now it's website design you know those pieces those steps were always there in my hobbies Way more than they're ever there in school. <laughs> yeah, because you conceptualized a lot of that. You know, we would have these yeah. small meetings and sometimes they would just be with like eight people or 10 people or something. And you conceptualized that. And then we created a committee to like, you know, flesh it out and design it. And then you led the, the design team that would build all of the cardboard props and stuff and costumes that we'd be using. And then we would train all these people that would like 200 people be like, okay, yep. this is what we're doing. And then we would have this massive orchestrated street theater and it would just be a pop-up, like a flash mob that would just appear with hundreds of people, but they're all coordinated and they're all acting this out and people would just stop and watch. And then we would have people that would be handing them out flyers. Like, this is what's going on. This is what you're seeing. This is what you can do about it. And this is a call to action. Yep. And it was good. It was visual. It was like, you know, we had a ton of people that would come up later and say, I had no idea that they were using bulldozers against people, you know, that they were, I I thought, you know, Caterpillar just made construction equipment. Right. And they didn't know that there's retrofitting these things for the military and they're using them to run over human beings and kill them and bulldoze civilian homes and take land and all that kind of stuff. And so we were able through a visual theatrical simulation 
to raise people's awareness about actual human rights, especially because it had that flash mob dynamic. It was right. like everybody's just going about their business in this posh area of Georgetown. And all of a sudden there's 200 people that are acting out this theatrical display. If there's 50 tanks or bulldozers surrounding all these people laying on the ground. holding Like, yeah, it was right. It was dramatic. Yeah. It would stop you in your tracks. You'd have to watch. Yeah, for sure. So we did that. And then we also took international observers over to the north of Ireland. See, that's where I think you and I really started to establish. Well, we started to establish trust early on, but I think where that's where maybe we cemented it in some ways. Because that was that international observer trip. Um, not everything was insured, right? Our safety was not 100% insured. We were trying to stay safe, but ultimately we had to just trust each other in some areas that were, you know, where there was a ruckus going on <laughs> down the street. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and just to contextualize, you know, for folks that aren't familiar with the nuances of the history of the conflict in the North of Ireland, back in those days, like late 90s, you know, type of time frame, you had these situations where there were really, really tense moments where the loyalist paramilitary groups and these, you know, Protestant cultural supremacist groups would be doing these cultural supremacist marches, sort of a ritual of dominance directly through these Catholic nationalist neighborhoods and violently intimidating the residents and all of this. And so the local residents would attempt to resist and nonviolently they would go out and they would sit on the road and say, this is our road. This is our community. Just, you know, walk around the other way. Don't come through here and violently intimidate us and, you know, all that. And then what would happen is the, the paramilitary police force would come and a combination of the paramilitary police force coming and throwing, you know, beating the residents and throwing them off the road combined with the loyalist paramilitary groups and these cultural supremacist groups, all forcing these marchers down the road. There was a lot of human rights abuses and, you know, violent intimidation of these local residents and these nonviolent demonstrators. And so what they did is they put out a call for international observers to come over and just document what was going on. They said, yes. just just come over and, you know, you can wear like bright colored jackets, you know, so you'll identify yourself as an observer. You can sleep on in our houses, sleep on our couch, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Like we'll house you just, we'll give you a couch to sleep on all this. Just come and stay in the community. And then when the siege happens, right? They surround the communities, they're trying to march through them, they're coming through with violence. When this siege happens and all this stuff goes down, there you guys witnesses. are going to be on shifts monitoring this stuff, filming this stuff, observing it, documenting it, and then, you know, take it back, show it to the congressional representatives in the United States, you know, show it to other people and just try to raise awareness of what is going on here so that we can challenge these human rights abuses. Right. I mean, we just played the role as witnesses. They gave us a video camera. Um, and so we stood on street corners and documented what we saw. And especially if anyone was getting arrested or if anything was happening, just film, film, film. And uh, yeah, we did that in a number of locations together. 
Yeah, around the north of Ireland, Gervahi Road and the Lower Ormore Road in Belfast and the Short Strand and a number of other places for anybody that knows the north of Ireland. But yeah, that was a really intense time. But it was an amazing time because we got to not only connect with other activists that chose to volunteer for this international observer role and were out there on shift, like meeting these super interesting people, but also we got to meet the local residents who are these amazingly extraordinary people and brave activists and people that had incredible history and struggle and were able to just, you know, sort of bring us into their world and hospitality and just stories I had to tell. I mean, it was just a really amazing immersive experience. Yes. I mean, yeah, the community center that we got into, the the music we got to hear at the pubs, like everything, all of it was, yeah, it was so good. Yeah. We went to the Felons Club. We went to the Rock and the Falls Road. We went to, you know, all of these different places. And we were rolling with all these local folks, you know, who had tons of credibility, political ex-prisoners and folks like that that had a huge amount of, of credibility in the community. And it was really an amazing political education for us to just go and listen and learn, which I think is actually, you know, one of the major things that I took away, to be honest, like out of our entire degree program, right? We did a master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution. And a lot of people think about that topic and that concept as, okay, I'm going to go become this Western educated, you know, conflict resolution expert. And then I'm going to go into these conflict regions and tell these people how to solve their conflict uh, because I have all of this Western education. And clearly these people over here just don't know how to get along. So I'm going to go enlighten them and then facilitate this thing. And that's literally a lot of the perspective, right? Of, of people that kind of go into these programs or, or type of, you know, that type of thing. And I think our experiences allowed us to flip that around and basically say, we're going to go the community the local community, they're going to put out the call, you know, for observers or for activists. Yeah. They're going to set the terms. We are going to conduct ourselves exactly in accordance with what, what they're asking us to do, not telling them what to do. And then we're going to listen and we're going to learn from these extraordinary people. Yeah. And local needs and local power is always the most powerful. We definitely learned that. Yeah, that was good. That was not our first first major adventure together though <laughs> that was only one of our major adventures and it was a major one but our you, first yeah. major adventure was on our first class and i think we had to do some kind of a team project and i teamed up with you because i had noticed you the the week before when you had stood up in protest and walked out of our entire master's welcome auditorium meeting. I thought it was impressive. You had uh, told Dean Goodman that our preparatory reading list was full of privileged Western white men and only those perspectives and we were trying to study international peace and conflict resolution, it would be good to get more international perspectives. And then I think he says something to the effect of grumble, grumble, grumble. And then someone else raised their hand, and he pointed at them, and then he looked at you and he said, oh, sorry. 
It appears to be a question from another white male, to which you stood up and marched out of the whole room. And that's how I that's how I met you. That's how a lot of people met, found me. I had a number of people coming up to me afterwards. I, they definitely knew who I was after that. <laughs> so, wow, he already left Dean Goodman's auditorium. So then, yeah, so then I sat next to you and I was like, hey, you want to team up? Let's do something. And so there was a conference. It was for, it was kind of a a handing of the torch from one sort of peace and conflict kind of activist generation to the next. And so these were people who had done a lot of direct activism during the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And they were now getting ready to kind of hand things off to us kids. And we were focused on like the World Bank, the IMF, Native American drilling rights and water rights. Anyway, we thought to ourselves, hey, let's do this. Let's go to this conference. And then we thought, well, if we're going to do this as part of class, certainly American University should pay us to go to this conference because they have a budget for things like this, don't they? We found out they did indeed. We applied and got a grant. And the grant covered the airfare only to this conference. And so you and I... We, with very, very little pre-planning, we simply got to the metro, got on a plane, and flew to Minneapolis, Minnesota. We landed, and we found our way to the conference, and we just put our stuff down in some room because we had no plan. We had no idea where we were staying, who we were staying with, how long we were, I mean, we had nothing. We didn't even know we were, we were getting food. We didn't know anything. We just trusted. We trusted it was going to work out. We trusted that we could go on an adventure together. And I think that I didn't even think twice. It was like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go with Matt. Sure. Like, I just automatically trusted you. So that was our first adventure. That was our first adventure. And it did all work out. We met amazing people at that conference. We met a very nice couple that had spare bedrooms and offered to let us stay and connected with a lot of really awesome activists. And that was a really good sort of opening experience to our grad school adventures, both because we met amazing activists and there was amazing social justice stuff going on there, which we were both very passionate about, but also it had that adventurous dynamic where we somehow hustled the money to get the plane tickets and then we're going to just figure things out when we got on the ground and landed there and we sort of... And we did. I don't remember being hungry. I don't remember being uncomfortable. I just remember like we figured out a way to get ourselves taken care of. Yeah, it was great. And that was the start of many, many adventures that were to come. Speaking of travel though, let me actually, I'm curious now to go back and ask you a little bit about your origins of international travel. When you were a kid growing up, did you travel with your parents? And if so, what are the earliest travel memories that you have? We traveled every summer and these were some epic trips. Some of them were international and some of them were not. Two of the epic trips were through Europe 
I was a really little kid. I climbed up on some kind of playground scaffolding. It was like a swing set that didn't start out as a swing set. I think it had started out as like something else, part of an antenna or something else that they made into a swing set. So it was was unusually high and the chain on it made it so that you could swing unusually wide. And it just made me want to climb. And so I climbed up to the middle of this thing and was swinging. And (laughs) I just remember these people ran over and were standing under me and they were yelling at me, but they were yelling at me in German. And so I definitely wasn't going to like, you know, shimmy down (laughs) or go anywhere. So like I wasn't going down at all. And then I think my mom looked up and realized, oh my gosh, Valerie's up at the top of that thing. Oh no. And so she very calmly kind of walked over and she remembers saying something like, Valerie, lunch, you know, just kind of like, it's, it's time, let's go, come on, Val. And so I just did my little monkey thing all the way to the end, shimmied down, like, you know, <laughs> like it was no big deal and ran towards her, but... Taking risks and going places was always part of my core personality. And you got that international travel exposure at such a young age. Yeah. Do you think that that travel experience at that young age, going out of the country and being in such a different type of environment, whereas you said people were speaking different languages to you and all that, how much do you attribute, you know, to that some of your confidence in traveling and being adventurous and all that. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, so my parents wanted my brother and I to have as much experience and exposure to other places as as we could within our means or whatever. And so that I don't ever remember not having like a summer where, okay, it's time to get your stuff together, you know, pack a suitcase, pack a tent, pack whatever, let's go. And like, we would go somewhere. It could be international. It could be, we're going to go explore like Yosemite in the Rockies and, you know, go out West, or we're going to go down to Florida and explore that whole area. And so... Yeah, we were always doing that. So I don't remember ever feeling like the world was too dangerous for me or too small for me. I think I I, I was lucky. I just, I always had a passport. You know, I had my first passport when I was like a little kid. And so I don't think we went far, but I mean, I was on a plane, you know, flying here and there probably when I was like one or two. And then... You continued to travel. You talked yeah. about your Dominican Republic experience. And then we had our grad school international travels that we were doing. And you've continued to travel all over the world to different places. And one of the things that I think has been really cool and amazing recently, as an adult, you have traveled with your parents. And particularly your mom. Yeah, mother-daughter trips. Yeah, to really epic places. And I wanted just, you know, ask if you can talk a little bit about that and how that has been, you know, I know you've traveled with your dad a little bit too, but also just like those mother-daughter trips in particular, because I know those are super regular and scheduled and annual and just 
one, to share some of the adventures that you've had together, which have been amazing, but also, you know, in the bigger picture, what that has meant to you and how you've been able to, you know, use that travel to reconnect with your mom as an adult. Oh, yeah. That's been amazing. Traveling with my mom. I have to give her all the credit because it was not my idea. It was hers. The idea started before you and I started Maverick. I mean, this idea started when we were just fresh out of grad school. Uh, I was working at my nonprofit. Uh, You were working at yours. And so, you know, I was living in D.C., but making under 30,000 a year, I think, when I started, 27.5 or something. I mean, crazy, crazy low. It was a fellowship. And so making no money, living in an expensive city, not having a lot of time off, she asks, hey, do you want to go and do this this week vacation with me. And, you know, they're like, I will just admit, like there was this totally wrong, but ego driven part of myself that was, well, do I want to spend my limited vacation, you know, hanging out with my mother traveling? Is that going to be weird? Is it going to be awkward? Is it going to be like, will it feel refreshing? Will it be a vacation? Like, what's it going to be like, you know? I don't know. Is she going to tell me what to eat, what to wear, what to do? (laughs) Those questions, you know, like come to, came to my mind. And and I, I don't remember what it was, but I think I just, I thought, no, give it a shot. Why not? Be grateful for the moment. Give it a try. See what's what. And oh my gosh, it was so much fun. It was so different. It was just my mom, that first trip, it was just my mom and I, going up the eastern seaboard all the way up to Nova Scotia. We had such a great time. I mean, we started out staying in New York City, looking over the Statue of Liberty. And then, you know, we stopped in Boston and then we stopped. We just stopped off in all these different coastal areas. And I got to meet my mom, the adult the happy camper, the fun traveler, the the one that just loves to see new things, loves to try new things, loves to laugh. I have a slightly higher risk tolerance than she does. And so I get her into things that she doesn't quite want to do, but does anyway for me. We have this wonderful dynamic, I think, where I notice things that she loves that I otherwise wouldn't notice. She's been to over 100 countries, so if you asked her like what her favorite places are in the world, she would probably rate them according to their flowers. You know, I have never appreciated like flowers and gardens and things like that until I've traveled with my mom and seen things through her eyes and what she lights up over. And so together, between the two of us, we have found locations that are both fun and stunning and adventurous. We've gone ziplining through Puerto Vallarta. We have gone on crazy adventures in crazy parts of the world. I want to hear about one because I don't think I ever heard the full story. I want to hear about when you and your mother were going to Abu Dhabi. Yeah. And you got your mother to ride the world's fastest roller coaster. The Ferrari Rosa. Yeah. So 
<laughs> and just to explain for everybody, for people that have never been there and don't know, you know, the context of that, of what's in Abu Dhabi there with the Ferrari world, explain so what that Ferrari is So Ferrari world is a, like, it's a, it's an amusement park there in, in Abu Dhabi and they have the world's fastest roller coaster. This is not one of those things that goes click, 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 clickety clack up a tall hill and then let's go. And then you do some loopy loops and you're done. No, this has a slingshot start like a supercarrier, like a jet flying off of a supercarrier where you just capture G's right away. You have to wear a whole face mask so your eyeballs don't fly out of your head. I mean, it's serious. It's so much fun. <laughs> so we, we were there for less than, I think we only had like 24 hours and we were going to leave. And I was just like, mother, we have to do this. And so we left our tour in the middle of Abu Dhabi so that we could find a taxi cab that would drop us off at Ferrari World and come and pick us up after an hour. And so we went to Ferrari World. The coaster was under maintenance. It was not running. And so we stayed for an hour and then we just couldn't do it. And so we had to leave. And I was so let down. And I think my mom was very relieved. And we got back to our hotel and I heard that the coaster was running again. And I looked at mom and I was like, mom, this is serious. We have to find another taxi cab, turn around, put our stuff away, go all the way back to Ferrari world and ride the world's fastest roller coaster. We have to try again. We cannot possibly give up. We can't be all the way here and give up. And she said, yes. That's a superhero mom. She doesn't even want to ride it to begin with. She has zero interest, but she's going along for the ride. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. And she agreed. And she did it. We wrote it twice. It was unbelievable. Both times. You do the same thing to me, by the way. I mean, for that kind of like adventure, adrenaline type of stuff, I am with your mother all day long. And you're the one that is always good to me. Hey, want to go on a hot air balloon ride? Hey, want to go jump out of a plane and go skydiving? Yes. Hey, want to go on this crazy, fast and scary roller coaster? And I'm usually <laughs> like, no. And you're like, well, let's go anyways. <laughs> I think we what we had done something. We had gotten to do something and it was your choice. And then we had another meeting in Vegas and it was my choice. And you said, "Okay, Val, we will do anything that you want to do because last time 
I chose. Yeah, because like when it's my choice, I'll pick something like, oh, let's go see the Blue Man Group. We'll go to a show. You know, we'll have a nice dinner. We'll go up to the top of the palm or something. Yeah, we'll go smoke cigars on some rooftop pool deck or something, you know. And then when it's your choice. I said, it turns out we are in luck. You can jump right off the needle. You can just jump straight off. Off the stratosphere, bungee jumping. Just go. (laughs) Boom. Off the stratosphere, just straight down on a wire. All the way to the ground. This is how things are. And I said, This is what I have chosen. Matthew, my (laughs) partner, this is what we are doing with our evening. Yeah. To which you nodded your head at first. You didn't go straight to no. Because if you would have gone right to negatory, I would have been, I would have had a defense ready. You kind of started with like a, huh, let me ponder this for a little while as if you were thinking about it. And I knew the whole time you were not thinking about it. I don't remember how that ended, except the fact that we did not you end said, up bungee jumping off this the is how it ended. You said, Val, <laughs> could we please go to Blue Man Group? <laughs> Not bungee jump off the stratosphere, but you did get me up in a hot air balloon, for example. I did. That was fun. And you have got me on a number of other things that were. You a- zip lined upside down. Yes, you got me to zip line upside down over That's the top right. of a whole bunch of trees with an insane amount of height. That's right. Yes, yeah. stuff like that is what you get me to do, which I actually think is a good thing. And I do appreciate you for it because I think what you do is. You intentionally get me to take a step outside of my comfort zone and into my, whoa, this is insanely scary, but I'm going to do it anyways. And then into my sort of, you know, growth zone, shall we call it? Yeah. Sometimes you just have to go straight off piste. Oh, we did that too. We did in we Zermatt. We skiing off piste and then we got We went into lost. Italy accidentally. Yes, I don't try to keep up with you on the ski slope, though. I will tell you that. We'll take the chairlift up together, and then I'm like, Valerie, I will meet you at the bottom. I don't like to go slow. You do not. Not just done. you don't like to go slow, but you like to push the limits of your speed capacity. I, uh, yeah, I like to ski right at the very, very, very raggedy edge of my comfort level. Like, I like to feel... Like, if I go any faster than this, I will be out of control. But this is where I, yeah. Right. Which is faster than I go. So I'm just like, I'll see you at the bottom. So you're usually waiting at the chairlift for a while. <laughs> There's me like traversing down the hill. Oh, this makes me want to go skiing. I know. Well, that was, I mean, of all of the, you and I have been skiing in a number of places together now, but of all of them, the Switzerland trip was, I mean, just a mind blowing trip. It was our company, annual Maverick company retreat. Yes. And then, so we flew out sort of our senior leadership team for this company retreat where we were going to ski Matterhorn, the Matterhorn Glacier Paradise in Zermatt, Switzerland. And then you and I had the brilliant idea. I must say, we have to just continue to commend ourselves for this idea that- This was a good idea. We'll fly out three days earlier. Yes. And do our- one-on-one executive leadership meetings 
before the team meeting. Yes. And we decided to get a, instead of sitting in a room and doing executive leadership meetings, because who wants to sit in a room all day? Boring. Boring. We would buy ourselves a three-day first class Swiss rail pass and get ourselves on about an eight-hour train ride each day through the most beautiful scenery you can imagine and sit right next to the window and have our meetings on the train. And these are 360-degree windows. Yeah. These are, I mean, you can see everything. It was amazing. Oh, epic. Still, I mean, everything was a photo. You just couldn't take it all in. It was amazing. Yeah, you're just going right through the Swiss Alps with like the most jaw-dropping scenery you've ever seen. And we took the Glacier Express, which was probably the highlight, which was the, it's an eight-hour express train. It's widely regarded as the most beautiful and scenic train ride in the world. And it was. It was. And it's an eight-hour express train. goes from Semmeritz to Zermatt right through the Swiss Alps. And it was just completely insane. Yeah, that was a good meeting. <laughs> that was a great meeting. Uh, that's how we roll, though. I mean, that's the we have more meetings there. That's the maverick. <laughs> that's the maverick lifestyle. And now we're thinking about the next meeting, and we are thinking about doing it in the Andes Mountains. Yeah, in South America, which is amazing. I skied in Bariloche in Argentina, mm-hmm. the Argentine side of Patagonia. Back in 2017, which was insane. But I have never been further south in Patagonia than Bariloche, and I have never been to the Chilean side of Patagonia. I've been to Santiago only. I've not been down to the Chilean side of Patagonia or toward Del Pine or any of those areas. So it would be really a great choice, I think. I think so too. And I have never been south of. Say, what would we figure? Costa Rica yeah. was as far south as I never got. Although you did go to Costa Rica as part of a Maverick retreat as well. I did indeed. That was another epic trip where we rented a giant villa in the middle of a rainforest. Oh, that was so cool. And we did. I, I got to zip line upside down too. So did you. Yes. we. That was where we did the upside down zip lining. We had this like bonkers villa in the middle of a rainforest. Had a pool. Had a pool. And it, then it was it was this totally secluded private villa, and we had this chef that would make us these dinners, ceviche, and we yeah it was like Ugh. all next level food and everything. And then it was right near the beach, right? Like it yeah. was it was very quick to the beach, but it was also we decided for our adventure days because the way we do our retreats, we do a couple days of business meetings, and then a couple days of just super fun active team building stuff. So in Switzerland, obviously that was skiing, but in Costa Rica, we did zip lining and then we did that waterfall hike. Mm-hmm. Oh, that tour. That was so good. That had like one of those suspension bridges that you got to go across and see some of the most amazing like rainforest flowers and oh, so good. Yeah, it was really amazing. And then we eventually got to hang out with those local Costa Ricans who made us that food. And oh, just, that family. That was amazing. Yeah. That was epic. But yeah, I feel like we should, I want to ask about your memories of 
the founding of Maverick and actually maybe even before that to how you and I actually started investing in real estate ourselves before we decided <laughs> to start Maverick. I think we should go that far back because this was like, we'd finished grad school. We were working at our jobs. As you said, we we're both in the nonprofit space. We weren't making very much money. And I would, of course, you know, come to you with any kind of like adventurous idea that I had because I knew you would be down for it. Yes. So you and I, we followed about the same trajectory. I first bought my house in 2004. Yeah, I bought my house in 2004 as well. And so in a single year, I remember at that time that my house had suddenly gone up in value at a higher equity rate than I had made at the nonprofit. Working for an entire year full time. I was working full time for an entire year. I made twenty seven five or you know, I don't remember what it was. Eventually I made better money, but at the first, you know, right out of grad school, at first I didn't. I was a fellow right. and DC is I mean DC is a place. It operates on interns, it operates on fellowships, it operates on cheap labor. Right. I mean that's just where we are. Yeah. And so I was making peanuts and then I bought a house where I didn't have to put very much down and I was able to do it. And then I was able to like step into all this equity and that was for nothing. And so then all of a sudden, I think at the same time, we were both like, huh, that was an interesting experience. Yeah. We could make more in real estate than we can make in our jobs. Well, the other thing that you and I also both did is that we bought a house that was much, had many more bedrooms than we needed and we rented them out mm -hmm. to friends of ours. Right. So we were sort of doing this house hacking thing where not only were we building equity at a faster rate than working full-time at our job, but also we, we were creating streams of income to help to cover the mortgage and the expenses yes. by leasing out those rooms to friends of ours. So we're, there we are working at nonprofits, our equities accumulating and more than our salary, and we got this income from from our housemates. And so I started reading everything I could read about real estate investing at that point. And I started reading all this stuff, and then I started buying out-of-state rental properties in 2005. And then I came to you. You remember this meeting? Yes. I was like, Val, we got to have a meeting. And we got to talk. I was like, I got some ideas. We got to talk. We got to talk about our future. Yeah, our future. Well, so wait, okay. Before we get to that conversation, yeah. we should say that coming out of grad school, our future was, I'm not going to say bleak. I'm just going to say that you're coming off of a debt. You don't get paid to get degrees in international peace and conflict resolution. You pay for those degrees. And boy, did we... And so then you have student loans, you have debt, you have everything else going on. We were union organizers together. Well, and we were, and that was, I mean, that's also an important thing to note that after finishing graduate school, I applied for a number of jobs so and, did didn't, I. and didn't get any of them. I think I applied for a job to work at the bookstore across the street from my house and I got rejected from that position. That's right. You did. Yeah. I was like, there's no jobs that I can get somehow. This isn't working out. And then I was like, oh, become a union organizer. Yeah. And then people were like, dude, they'll hire anybody. 
I was like, Val, sounds, I was hey, like, I have I was an like, idea. Sounds like I meet the qualifications. Like, <laughs> we were literally like doing like temp work, like moving our friends' stuff or uh-huh. whatever, like doing all this kind of stuff with our master's degrees, unable to get jobs. And then I'm like, Val, somebody told me that we could be union organizers because they'll hire anybody and we meet those qualifications. And I said, union organizer? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. So then we became union organizers. (laughs) Yes, we did. And that lasted for less than a year. So then we burned out of that and left and we're able to then transition into other jobs in the nonprofit space and work for different nonprofit organizations and sort of start building careers in that space, which went on for a number of years. And we were still doing sustained stuff. Yeah, we we stayed grounded in our activism for sure. And we were doing nonprofit work, which basically meant we were getting paid to be professional activists. Yeah. And I got into multimedia and you got into civil liberties and traveling. and. Yeah. And so then at some point I was like, okay, I've been working in the nonprofit space for a while now. And with this salary, it's I'm never going to make a lot of money at my job. So I should really learn how to do this real estate investing thing that equity boom happened with my house. That was crazy. So what I did is I refinanced my house. I took that money and I went and I started buying out of state rental properties. And at that point I was also going as part of my job, I was going out to Las Vegas a lot among other places. I was traveling around the country a lot in my nonprofit capacity. And I started reading books on card counting and how to play blackjack and how to beat the casino with blackjack. And then I started practicing, you know, and working on my blackjack, my card counting game and all that kind of stuff. And then I started reading about like the legendary, you know, MIT blackjack teams and, you know, these legendary card counters that were able to build huge businesses and and get investors and make enormous amounts of money through playing blackjack and counting cards. And it's, of course, it's legal, right? You're not cheating. You're just thinking while you're playing, but it's the, it's really the only game at the casino that can be legally beat if you know what you're doing. And so I started studying this and playing and practicing and all that. And at the same time, I'd been investing in out-of-state real estate. And at that point I was like, Val, Val, we got to (laughs) talk. We got to meet. We got to have a meeting. And then I was like, okay, listen. We need to form a blackjack card counting team. Now, here's the plan. I would be the one at the table counting, right? And I would be keeping track of the count. And then I would signal you to come in when the count got to a certain number. And you'd come in as the high roller and boom, 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 make the bets until the count comes back down. And then I would get you, signal you back out of the game. Right. So I give you the whole spiel on how the blackjack team structure would work. Yeah. And then I talked to you about the real estate investing stuff. Yeah. That I've been doing. And I was like, you know, this is this is out-of-state real estate investing and, and turnkey stuff and how it works and all that. And you look at me. Yes. Very seriously. And you're like... I think I can only do one of the two. Yes. Just in terms of use of my time. I think that they were both good ideas. You had made a good case for both. Yeah. 
And I thought, yeah, I could form a blackjack card counting team. Yeah. Or I could become a real estate professional. Yeah. Hmm. If I tried to do both at once, I feel like I would be stretching myself way too thin trying new things. Right. And so real estate, it was. That's what we came out of that conversation yeah. with. I said, let's try real estate first. And I will practice counting into a five deck shoe, but let's start with real estate. <laughs> exactly. And that was the decision and that was it. And we had the, you know, equity from our houses and all that kind of stuff. And so we started traveling around and we started buying rental properties in different U.S. real estate markets and all that. And then I ended up moving because you and I lived in the same place from 1999 until 2006. Yeah. And those are my years in DC. And then I moved out to LA. Sad. In 2006. And we were still doing our nonprofit jobs. Although, actually, this is one of my top memories from my first year in LA. Okay. I moved downtown. Yes. Into a high rise building downtown. Yes, you did. And downtown LA, there's a section of it which is called Little Tokyo. And it's all Japanese restaurants as well as really authentic Japanese shops of various kinds. So various things that are all run by Japanese people. So your birthday was coming up. I think it was the year that I moved out there. And your birthday was coming up in November because I moved out there in the summer. And I'm walking through little Tokyo and I was like, yeah, I should get Val something cool for her birthday. What should I get her? And I mentioned earlier that I sort of think of you like a ninja. Yes. Even though you're a Mennonite pacifist, you're also very ninja-like. And so I go into this store that is literally selling Japanese weapons. <sighs> like they're selling throwing stars and they're selling nunchucks. Love. And they're selling... Samurai swords. Love those. Yeah. So I was like, Valerie would love all of these things. Yes. Maybe I should get her a throwing star. No, you know what? This samurai sword looks really amazing. So I said, I think she will appreciate this because. That's a good thought. Yeah. So, and it's like a real sword. And so I go up and I was like, you know, how much is this sword and this and that? And I was like, would I be able to ship this? <laughs> I was like, I definitely wouldn't be able to take this on a plane, but like if I buy this for someone that lives on the other side of the country, can I just have you, or do you have the ability to wrap it up here and mail it for me? Right. And she's like, oh yeah, no, this all stuff ships and it does the, 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 the. I was like, okay, well, I would like to buy this as a gift. She's like, okay. Best so gift ever. She wraps it up and I send it to you as a birthday present. Yes. And... I want you to then tell I love it. The legacy of then what happened after you received that gift. So I have this amazing sword that has been primarily used to capture cat toys that fall under places in our kitchen in our living room. I am living with two housemates at the time. We were all out of the house and we had a string of robberies around our cul-de-sac and we got home and there was a noise and I have a split level house. There was a noise on the second level and the sword, it was right there 
in the kitchen. And so I grabbed the sword and ran towards the noise. And when I opened the door, there was a dude in the room. The window was open and he was handing out a laptop to some other dude. And I held the sword up at him and I said, I have a sword. <laughs> and I <laughs> showed it to him with some pep in my step and he went right out the window. <laughs> He did not drop the laptop, so we lost like three electronics and everything else. But I chased an intruder away with a sword, and then I had to explain that to the police because <laughs> we had to call, you know, about the missing electronics. So yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> if you were a burglar breaking into someone's house. And they come out brandishing a samurai sword. sword. <laughs> that is not an experience that you're going to forget. No. So, anyways, soon after I moved to L.A., I ended up getting unexpectedly, within six months of moving out to L.A. to take a new job, right. I unexpectedly got fired from my job. You did. And that set my whole head spinning because I had just moved out there to take this job and now I got fired and all that. And so I was like, what am I going to do now? I had just turned 30 and on, they took all my stuff. They took my phone. They took everything. I had no phone. And I go out to my car and I'm driving to the phone store to buy a phone so I can call my mother to tell her I got fired. That's right. And on that drive, I was like, I am not going to apply for another job. I'm going to figure out how I can create my own business, generate my own income and never have another supervisor again. So after I got the phone, I said, I have no idea how to do that. I better go to the bookstore to start reading books on how to do that. So I go to the bookstore and I'm sitting there and I'm reading these books and I would go in every day and read books from the business section on how to start a business. And as I continued doing this, I realized fairly quickly that I did not have most of the skills required to start and run a successful business. But I immediately thought to myself, Valerie has all of the skills that I do not have. We do compliment each other. And you called me from L.A. Hey, Val, I have an idea. You want to quit your job? And start a professional real estate company with me? <laughs> Let's do that. I said, okay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are the types of things that I would come to you with. Whenever I have an yes. idea for something major like that, I would come to you and I would have a reasonable degree of confidence that you would be down for a really adventurous thing. I called my mother. My mom thought, hey, you know, if you're going to start something, why not start it now? What are you waiting for? Give it a shot. Why not? You're a shrock. We take risks. We jump in. Give it a, you know, give it a try. And she was the one really that gave me a little bit of a push. Maybe I should just try to be my own boss and do my own thing. And, and she sent me this pencil that just said Shrock Realty and the phone number was three digits. 
And it was like a little tchotchke that my grandfather had because he was in real estate in the middle of farm country, Ohio, part time as part of like a million other things that he tried to do to make money. Wow. Yeah. And so my mom sent that to me. She's like, hey, you know what? Take a risk. This stuff, uh, entrepreneurship is in the family. You know, roll the dice. Props to your mom. That's really amazing. So let me ask you about the concept of risk taking, because we've talked about it previously here in terms of your interest in adrenaline and taking physical risks. Yeah. And your inclination not only to do that for yourself, but to encourage other people to move a little bit beyond their comfort zone and step a little bit outside of it. How does that translate for you to business and entrepreneurship? You know, it's interesting. I have a much lower financial risk tolerance than, say, you do. I think that might come from, though I was not raised on a farm, both of my parents being from a, a rural Mennonite background kind of raised me with this very conservative, you know, save every penny, don't spend your money on this, don't spend, you know, you only try to spend money on like a sure thing, like, whereas like, you'll take risks on marketing, or you'll take risks on advertising, or like, you know, let's bring in this person or hire that person. I'm usually ready for that for that kind of stuff, like, six months later, you know, I want to have every single like I dotted and T crossed and every part of someone's job worked out and every part of the plan somehow meticulously noted. And then I'm ready to start. Whereas sometimes you just have to step in with both feet and then figure it out as you go, or you're not going to get something done, you know? And so it is interesting that our risk varies in such an interesting way. Whereas I will jump off a building or like trust that a parachute will open or like try something with my body that I've never tried before and just know that if I fall, I'll probably be okay. Or I'm going to ski at this speed. And if I lose control, I will handle it. You know, I have all of these confidences and then it comes to, all right, let's hire someone to do this or someone, you know, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. I'm like, ah, let's do a podcast. Ah, you know, how much is it going to cost? Is it, you know, like I, I have a hundred thousand questions that come up. Whereas I think that's a good balance because you'll see the bigger picture first. Like, Hey, we need to get there. That's point B. Um, how do we get from point A to point B? And then we kind of work together. And I think our different various levels of risk tolerance kind of help us get us there together. I think that's how we make a good partnership. I want to ask you more about that because I think business partner selection is one of the most important things in entrepreneurship and also one of the most difficult things that a lot of people, that's where things can really go wrong. So I want to ask your insights a little bit, and maybe also you can, you can share with Maverick as the example, how, you know, what our, you see as our respective roles in the company and how we work together as business partners and how our partnership works. Yeah, I think that 
man, I think our personalities were together really well. And we showed that to each other very early. I think just because we ended up doing projects together at school, because we were doing street activism where we could be arrested together or we could be, you know, detained together. Um, we were doing teach-ins and stuff where we were working together to, you know, get a message across. And at that, at the point that we decided to go into an entrepreneurial direction, I already trusted you with plan making. I think that you probably trusted me with like operational, you know, thinking like I was always the like, okay, we're going to make a hundred tanks. Here's how we're going to actually do it. We're going to go to these stores and collect these refrigerator boxes. We're going to meet at Rami's house. We're going to, you know, like I would kind of converge a lot of the plans. And so I think we had sort of a natural inclination towards, I think you like to, you know, drive the business towards a big picture goal. And I really, really like to make the engine work. I like that a lot. Like I like to put the pieces together to make the plan work. And I think a business needs both. So with that, you know, the other thing that jumps out to me too, just to build on what you were saying is I think that we had already established a very high level of trust and we had been in very intense or high risk situations together. Yeah. So we had been doing international observing in the North of Ireland in an environment where you had military occupation forces and paramilitary groups and heavily militarized police and you had a whole bunch of stuff that was going on, human rights violations taking place. I mean, it was a, a very intense environment and we really had to trust each other a lot and work together a lot under very intense circumstances and in those very intense situations. I would say the same for the street activism, because like when you're dealing with, I mean, we were constantly in that sort of push and pull of the politics of Israel and Palestine. So, I mean, we had to be able to to navigate that stuff with a with a lot of people and a lot of tension. Yeah, and do it well. Yeah, and listen to everybody and let you know let views come out and let you know heated arguments happen sometimes. Yeah, and I think you know the other thing that grounded us in building our business is that we decided to build a socially conscious business where we would directly connect any financial success that we had with this business with contributing financially to organizations that were important to us. Yes, indeed. Because I think that was like a huge thing because we both came from an activist background, nonprofit background, social justice, you know, human rights type background. And as we were transitioning and deciding to do the entrepreneurial thing, we were both on the exact same page about like, you know, are we selling out? Like, how do we do this in a way that is socially responsible and adds value and helps to affect positive change in the world? Right. You have to find a way to be passionate about what you're doing. And so by giving back in, in ways that we want to and we get to choose to, it makes the work so much more satisfying. 
Yeah, it really, really does. It's really important. It's a super important grounding. And the way that I frame it to people now as I'm talking with other entrepreneurs and stuff about our business model is I frame it as having four pillars of purpose. The first one is that we were going to design a path to our own dream lifestyle where we wouldn't have to be working for organizations and have bosses and have to deal with all that kind of stuff. And that was very early on when I was reading these books back in 2007, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss came out. That was I, huge. I, I mailed you a copy of it. I said, Valerie, read this immediately. Yes. And we did. And we said, okay, we're going to create this, have this business facilitate not just making us money and covering our expenses, but facilitate our location independence and, you know, our freedom of mobility and, and allow us to create our ideal lifestyle. So that's one pillar, which is important. The second one is that when we grow our business and we hire people, all of our staff will be location independent and we're facilitating them being able to design and lead their dream lifestyle. The third one is our customers which is that we are offering a product and a service that is adding value to their lives, helping them to build wealth, helping them to generate passive income and helping them to create the financial freedom so that they can design their dream lifestyle. And then the fourth pillar is actually giving back 10% of all of our revenue that we make, our net revenue before we take any money out of the company and donating that to different organizations that affect positive change in the world so that we have that incentive structure so that as the company does better, so to then do the organizations that we care about. And I, you know, I tell people that you really need multiple pillars of purpose because one of them is not enough, you know? Right. I want you to talk about some of them though. And maybe just, you know, because you've really led a lot of the giving back aspects of our company and made a lot of decisions in that realm in terms of who we're giving money to and how we're allotting it and all that. And there've really been some amazing organizations and, and stories associated with that. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about that aspect of our business. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I like doing is wherever we're selling or if we're making money in, you know, Baltimore, I want to look at you know, I want to look at places in Baltimore or Maryland or like the county where we can give back to. And we've been doing that for a long time. And so, you know, picking and choosing areas in Chicago and all these different places, it's felt so good because I know what it's like to get a donation from the nonprofit end when you're working really hard towards a specific advocacy goal. And you start to get people's attention and they want to help you with that advocacy goal. That feels great. But giving, being able to like log into different projects or go and see what different organizations are doing near you and then being able to step up and help, like being that person, that, that feeling is a great feeling. And we've been able to really... We've been in a position, we've been very lucky to be able to help some organizations right when things were very very necessary. And it, we sort of flipped the script because when we were activists yeah. working in the nonprofit space or as students, we never had any money to donate anywhere. So we were basically donating our time right. 
but we never had any money to donate. And then now as business owners, we can donate our time. We can sit on boards. We can volunteer to support different activist causes, you know, on completely our own terms without yep. any supervisor, right? And decide what to give, when to give, who to give, all we, of that. Yeah. And all of a sudden we have a financial, a way to financially contribute to these groups, which as you said, is huge. It feels so good. Yeah. Yeah, it's super important. And we've contributed to tons of really cool stuff. I mean, some of it's international. So we helped build houses in Colombia for people that were in poverty and unable to afford housing. And we built two houses for people in Colombia. We donated to Palestinian girls sports teams. We did. We've uh, we've helped folks around here that uh, in a place called Jubilee that helps adults with disabilities um, go into like family style housing so that you're feeling like you're, you're living in a house. You've got housemates, you've got a family that, you know, you cook together, you do grocery shopping together, you, you form your bubble, if you will. Right. It's really been amazing over the years to be involved with these groups and to be able to donate $5,000 plus to a lot of these different groups. Because like you said, when you've been working at a nonprofit and you get a donation of like five grand plus just unexpected from yeah. somebody that like oh you gosh. didn't even know, like that feels really great. And then all of a sudden you have a relationship with them and you have this connection and it's just, it's really good. And it motivates us as business owners to do well financially with the business because the better we do financially, the more money we're going to be able to put into these causes. Right. Yeah. I think that's some of the most fulfilling stuff that I can, that I get to do is, is find the causes and, and, do, and now I'm on a couple of different boards because of this, you know, because of our, our able being able to give. So. Yeah. And, you know, working with our clients as well has been amazing. I mean, when we have clients that are coming back to buy their fourth, fifth, sixth rental property with us and they're, you know, we're working with clients right now. We've got a client closing next week that has been buying properties with us since 2011, you know, and building their rental property portfolios. And we have the ability to help people buy in different U.S. markets and to buy completely turnkey so they don't have to be the rehabber or the landlord. They can buy and own rental properties that are professionally managed in different real estate markets and just build their portfolio and build their stream of passive income. And when we get those positive messages from our clients about what that's done for their life and their family's lives and all that kind of stuff. And we're helping all of our clients to build their financial independence. And then, you know, we're able to also give to these types of organizations and help them and stuff. I mean, those are the pillars that, that really drive you and you need them. You need all four of them because entrepreneurship, as what I tell people, <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. It's too hard if you don't have all of those things. Yeah. I want to ask you too about the lifestyle design component of this. We mentioned that one of the pillars was that we wanted to create maximum freedom for ourselves so that we have the maximum number of choices and options in our life in terms of freedom of mobility, location independence, all of these types of things. And you have traveled, you mentioned a little bit before with your mom, but you have traveled to some really epic places, yes, including some places that I have not been. And I want to ask you about 
in general, you can talk about sort of your lifestyle design because okay. uh, some of your choices in terms of how you structure your life, it's obviously a little bit different than the choices that I make, although we both have 100% freedom to do however we choose. But I also want you to talk about some of your travel adventures. I have now been to, I want to say about 10 countries in Africa, but you have been to one that I have not been to yet, which is Namibia. Oh, I love Namibia. And I want to hear your Namibia story. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll say this different than you, you like to be able to have all of your important stuff and carry on luggage and be able to go from country to country to country. Um, and that is your lifestyle choice. I like having a home base and I go out and have adventures and then come back to my home base and wait for the next adventure. Tell me about Namibia. Cause I've never been, okay. tell me about your impression so, of Namibia and what you did there. <laughs> so we flew in, my friend, Sarah and I flew into a place called Windhook. Our goal was to drive about four hours from Windhook, is in the center of the country, out to the coast, to a place called Swakopmund. We got to Swakopmund, and the very first thing we did was we went dune boarding. And that was real. That was fun. That was steep. There's these the wonderful red sand that gets blown across the African continent. And by the time it gets to the west coast... Um, in Namibia, those dunes are very fine. The sand is beautiful. It's reddish. It's incredibly, the, the tiny sand particles are very small. And so you really can go up to the top of a sand dune with a fully waxed board, put on real, you know, like snowboard boots, strap in and get some serious speed. And that's what we were doing. Like we would go down, we would, we did, we went down on sleds. We went down on, um, on snowboards. We, we went off of jumps. We did everything. It was so much fun. I think I had sand in my ears for days. I feel like I remember an Instagram picture of you on a sandboard, literally upside down. Yes. I had just gone over a jump. I had landed it. But then at some point started tumbling down the hill and a photographer was there that day and caught me tumbling. So like I was upside down, the sand was all around me and like this cartoon swirl. <laughs> I was, it's literally like on the picture is you you like on your head, Yeah. that your head, your helmet is on the sand and your body is straight up with your board in the air. Yeah. Like it was a literal like cartwheel type tumble. We'll post it on yeah. the uh, we'll notes. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That was, oh my God. That was one of the very first adventures that I took. It was something where I was, I was in places I'd never been before doing things I had never done before, like trying to, you know, challenge my own sense of adventure, which I did. You definitely did. Yeah. And then I started pulling other people into my challenges after that. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. But it's been really amazing. I mean, you know, we've been able to offer that same lifestyle freedom to everyone that we've hired onto our team. Yeah. You know, you can work from anywhere. You can. That's what I did. When I went to Africa, I just, I, I packed up my laptop and I stayed in Johannesburg for about three weeks, worked from there, went down to, stayed in the. Cape Town? Cape Town. Yeah. Stayed there for a couple of weeks, traveled around and you know, didn't miss work. 
You know, I was able to like keep up with what was going on. As long as we had a good internet connection, we were able to like, just, you know, work as, as per normal. Right. Yeah. And so is everybody else on the Maverick team. And if they want to go somewhere for a month or six months or travel the world as an itinerant nomad or relocate to another country tomorrow or whatever, like they could just do that. Or form a bubble. We could form our bubble anywhere. (laughs) We definitely could. I want to also ask just for your tips on the operational side of the business and, you know, from your zone of genius and the things that you do and that you do well and that you've really evolved to an incredibly high level, your skills in the areas that you work over the last decade plus, what tips can you offer the business owners or business managers that are running the things in their business that you're running in this business? I think the most important thing that I have in my mind when I am working on something operationally, especially something that's hard is there is always a way. There's just always a way. Um, I, (laughs) I learned that from MacGyver. Like I learned that growing up. Um, I think, Yeah. I come at the business problems like that. There's always a way to do it. Find a way, find the fastest way, find the sneaky way, find the shortcut way, arbitrage your time, just find a way. There's always a way. I believe that with all of my heart and I have lived that. Um, So (laughs) one thing that's probably true for a lot of kids that grew up with like an Amish Mennonite culture, right? Is like you have a very simple living kind of mentality and you tend towards plainness, you know, in the way that you go about your life in the way that what you show the world and stuff like that. So for us, television was not something that was supposed to be like a big deal in our house. And I loved, loved TV and wanted to watch it a lot more than the rest of my family. And we had this tiny, weird 1960s television in our basement that was like black and white that you could touch and it would turn on. Okay. So I talked my dad into putting that TV in my room and I was probably in third grade. So I was like eight. I approached him at just the right time because he was very focused on something else. And so he said, yeah, you can put that in your room, but you can't watch it when you're in bed. You have to, you know, when it's bedtime, it's bedtime. So First thing I did was I took the TV, I put it in my room, I went back downstairs and I stole a whole bunch of copper wire from my dad's little workshop in the basement. I took the TV apart, I went and found the little touch mechanism in the back of it, wrapped the copper wire around it, brought it out through the back of the television, ran the copper wire like underneath my my dresser, around my mirror, behind my Cabbage Patch Kids and my toys and my Transformers, up behind my Legos and then up behind my bed and did a little, like a little circle knot that I taped to the back of my headboard. So when I was sent to bed at the age of eight and I wanted to watch the 10 o'clock shows and everyone knows the 10 o'clock shows were the best. That was when Miami Vice was on that I was not allowed to watch. I would go to bed. I would hear thump, 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 thump. My parents going downstairs. I would touch my banister across the room 
the television would light up and I would watch anything I wanted. And when I was done or I heard thump, 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 like my parents were coming back, I would simply touch my headboard, not have to move an inch and my TV would be off. That's how to get something done. There is always a way. That's the world before remote controls. This is the world before I was allowed to watch television. All right. I have to build on this. And I want to ask you a final question here before we move into the lightning round. Since you just brought this topic up. Okay. I want to ask you to expand on what those 1980s shows meant to you. MacGyver. Okay. Magnum P.I., Knight Rider. Yes. How they impacted you and even all the way up through entrepreneurship. Okay. I will say that Magnum P.I. and MacGyver were the two big shows for me. Like I watched every single episode. At some point, VCRs were invented and I taped every single episode and then watched them over and over and over and over and over again until I could probably tell you every episode of MacGyver, or you could just start telling me an episode and I could finish it and tell you every character in it. I mean, it's that serious, right? I probably utilize television to dissociate slightly from social pressures and realities that were hard for me growing up in Southwest Michigan and having kind of a fluid identity. I think I probably disappeared a little bit into the shows that I was watching and got very obsessed with them behaviorally just because I was kind of using them as an escape. So the fact that I got obsessed with MacGyver, I mean, that I, first of all, I never am far from my own Swiss army knife. I probably have eight of them in the house right now. I always have duct tape. I always look at a problem as there's 10 ways to solve it. Just find one. You can always use objects in multiple ways. I mean, like I watched that show, but like I was watching it and absorbing it at an age where I was taking in the whole point of the show is to solve problems in alternative ways. There's always a way to solve this problem. Find it. You have, you know, the clock is ticking often. And so every single episode was try to solve this problem in a super novel way, nonviolently. It fit everything that I was supposed to be learning, right? And like, do it creatively. Use this, whatever he found. Use this piece of gum. Use the wrapper as a, you know, as a circuit. Yeah, that impacted me. It did. I go through my life and I, I approach problems and think to myself, like, yeah, there's a solution. I just have to find it. And that's how I go about Maverick. Like, that's why I like operations. You will say something like, it would be great if someone could just log in from any device and, you know, reserve a property from our website, our property vault. And like, all of a sudden my brain is like, okay, yeah, well, they need a login. They need an account. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need a contract that can pop up. We need a page. We need a way to do a signature. We need to, you know, like you will, will have like a vision and, and I am the MacGyver behind the scenes. Like, okay, we've got five tools. We need to get to this goal. How do we do it? Well, who do I need to do it? Let's bring in this guy. Let's bring in this person. You know, let's try these things. Let's create this website. That's my favorite thing to do is problem solve. You are definitely MacGyver of Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, 
Are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. Val, what is one book that you would most recommend people check out that has significantly influenced you over the years? Oh, The Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> You'll get mixed up, of course, as you already know. You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go, but be sure where you step. Step with care and great tact. And remember, kids, life's just a great balancing act. <laughs> Dr. Seuss, he's my doctor. Uh, all right. What is one content medium? Could be a podcast or a blog or a YouTube show that you would recommend people check out? The Way I Heard It with Mike Rowe. So Mike Rowe is one of my favorite people. He is the Discovery Channel's, you know, top dude. He narrates a lot of stuff that I watch. He narrates Deadliest Catch. Every every single Discovery Channel show is is uh, narrated by like a, a few top people, and he's one of them. He also did um, Dirty Jobs. Anyway, I've been a huge fan of Mike Rowe for a number of years, and now he does a podcast called The Way I Heard It. And it's a great podcast and I've never missed an episode. So there you go. Awesome. Who is one person currently alive today that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with? Robert Downey Jr. (laughs) (laughs) I want to have dinner with Iron Man. All right. Of all of the places that you have traveled thus far, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you have ever been that you would most recommend people check out? Check out Iceland. Go to Iceland. Like fly into Reykjavik and go to the Blue Lagoon. Um, All these places, like some of them are touristy, sure, but oh my goodness, when you're there, it just, it'll blow your mind. I love the, yeah, I love everything about Iceland. Swakopmund in Namibia, not only can you go dune boarding, but you can really actually, you can enjoy the coast. You can enjoy the water. They've got animals and sea life. You can go fishing. You can like, oh my gosh, you can just explore the desert and they've got little lizards and all sorts of stuff to find and do. Oh, okay. So that's, that's another one. Can I just say Lake Michigan is my favorite place. One of my favorite. I mean, oh my gosh, I... Even saying, like, did you just see what happened to my body? Even saying Lake Michigan, I just, ah, uh, shark-free, salt-free. It's just this wonderful water, this beautiful place with great beaches. I just, I grew up biking there. I grew up, like, camping there. Um, every time I get back to Lake Michigan, I feel home more than any other place. Yeah. That is awesome. All right. What are your top three bucket list destinations, places that you have never been that are highest on your list you would most love to see? Okay. I would like to go to Patagonia. I want to ski in the Andes. I would also like to ski in the Himalayas. I think that would be fun. And I would like to go to Japan. Awesome. These are my places. Amazing. All right, Valerie, I want you to let people know how they can find out more about you and about Maverick Investor Group and how people 
can come into your universe if they're interested in buying rental properties, if they're interested in becoming a Detroit Lions football fan, you know, if they want That's more, true. they want more Valerie Schrock in their life, where should they go? All right, Matt, you can connect with me. Well, you can connect with me personally on Facebook. I'm facebook.com slash Valerie J.S. V-A-L-E-R-I-E-J-S. I don't remember my LinkedIn account, but we'll put that in the show notes so you'll be able to see that. And if you want to connect with me at the business, it is maverickinvestorgroup.com. If you want a special gift, it's maverickinvestorgroup.com slash lions. You will get a free report as well as a free consultation. So come visit us. Awesome. We are going to link up all of that information in the show notes. So you can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode, and there you will find direct links to all of that and everything that we discussed on this episode. Val, this was an epic conversation. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.